uh, before time escapes us, I'm going to call up uh, the man of God, servant of the Lord, a good friend of mine, Dr. Mike Caparelli. Would you just give him a great big victory welcome this morning? Good morning. I'm confused. I don't know to hug, to shake hands. Anybody come in here confused this morning? I'm so glad to be in the house of God. Uh, you have an awesome pastor. You know, God gives people authority. He gives them power, uh, not to overpower, but to empower. And uh, you have a shepherd who empowers. Amen. Uh, one of the, um, the, the ministry that God has called me to is, the name of it is Unmuted. Uh, the goal of Unmuted is to give victims, or to use biblical language, the oppressed, their voices back. Now, maybe you've lost your voice in this life, whether it be through trauma, sexual abuse, domestic violence, addiction, depression. When you come to Christ, the Bible says there was a mute man, and Jesus gave him his voice back. And uh, I want to encourage you today, you can stop at the, at the table, at a shirt, it says, I got my voice back. You can put your testimony on a t-shirt so when people see it, you can tell them who gave you your voice back, who loosened your tongue. Amen? Uh, we are running a special if you get the book, the workbook, and the t-shirt today. Not 45 No, but if you buy the shirt and the two books, uh, you get it for $40, which is like a $5 savings. So I want to get right into the Word of God this morning. Can you stand with me? Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. It is a timeless tale but this morning, I want to land this plane right where you're living. And I, I pray that God would awaken our hearts. He'd awaken love. That when the prodigal son does come home, when the prodigal daughter does come home, they come home to a loving father and a loving mother. Not a critical older brother that drives them back out. We can pray for them to come in. But when they come in, the question is, will they stay in? I thank God for the word this morning. I thank God for the prophecy that there'll be radical salvations. Now, I pray that this word would ensure that when God sends them in, that they will stay in. Amen? I want to talk to you about empathy, which is synonymous with the word love. But I want to speak to you specifically from a timeless story, a story that you've heard many times, maybe not from this perspective, but the story of the Good Samaritan. Father, bless this word. Change our hearts today. I pray that our hearts would no longer be unbreakable, but they would be broken. A broken heart is better than an unbreakable heart. I pray that you'd shift this morning from apathetic to empathetic, that our hearts would be full of love instead of indifference. Remove from us our hearts of stone and give us this day a heart of flesh, the heart of God. The heart of God towards our lost children, towards our lost neighbors, towards our lostalism, of all fault-finding, of all contentiousness, and give us a heart of love, I pray, that when they come in, they stay in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Reading from the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, I'm going to go right into the story, skip through the preface. In verse 30, it says, a man was going down, Jesus is telling the story, and he's on the road to Jericho. Somebody say the road to Jericho. That's important. As he's on the road to Jericho, they stripped him. They beat him up. They fled, and they left him half dead. Somebody say half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. 
When he saw him, he passed him by. In the same way, a Levite came, and when the Levite saw him, the Levite passed him by. But a good Samaritan, didn't say a good religious person, didn't say a good church person, didn't say a good priest, a good Samaritan, a good sinner, came on his journey, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he put him on his donkey, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. You may be seated. Amen. On March 14th, 1964, 28-year-old lady named Kitty Genovese, you might know the face, walking to her apartment in Marlborough section of Queens, New York. I've been to the spot about 10 times. PhD is in behavioral science. I'm a sociologist by trade. Uh, this particular case changed all of sociology. It became a landmark study that changed the way we think about crime. This 28-year-old girl, Kitty Genovese, she's on her way home, and she's stabbed by a stranger named William Mosley. After he stabs her, she screams. 38 ear and eyewitnesses hear her scream. Hardly anyone does anything. William Mosley leaves the scene, and he comes back 20 minutes later. 20 minutes where she laid in a pool of blood in front of that apartment building. When he saw no one came to her rescue, no one came to help. He came back, stabbed her a few more times, and post-mortem sexually assaulted her. The New York Times published a series of articles on this case, and what they found equally as flabbergasting as the maliciousness of this stranger was the callousness of these 38 neighbors. So for, for article after article, they didn't focus so much on the hostility of the stranger. What they focused on was the apathy of the neighbors. Sociologists began to study this case and for the next 40 years get to the bottom of what is underneath this coldness this indifference and this morning I'm praying that the word of God would shed some light on why it is that we are so indifferent to injustice what makes us so cold what what causes us to be so uninvolved so apathetic towards those that are dying in our very midst when Jesus speaks of the end times in Matthew chapter 24, it was really interesting is when he speaks of the end times, he doesn't speak so much of the heat of hatred, but he speaks of the cooling of love. He doesn't say with the increase of wickedness comes the heat of hatred. He says with the increase of wickedness comes the cooling down of love. He doesn't say heat it, uh, hatred is going to heat up. He says love is going to cool down. Why does he focus on the coolness of love? Why doesn't he focus on the heating of hatred? Because it takes apathy for there to be a pandemic of hostility. 
In the words of the Irish statesman Edmund Burke from 200 years ago, all that needs to happen for evil to prevail is for enough good people to do nothing. That for there to be an atmosphere of hostility, there must be a church that is full of apathy. Jesus doesn't pick on the heat of hatred. He picks on the cooling down of love. Now when you look at that word love in the Greek, what you find out is it speaks of the love feast. The love feast in first century uh, Bible times was a time when different cultures would gather together and they would koinia, they would fellowship. And usually those love feasts were financed by the richer among them. The richer would pay for the poorer. In those feasts, they would foster an understanding of differences between classes and cultures. This wasn't just an ordinary love, but this was an empathetic love he says that empathy will cool down how many are seeing that lack of empathy between classes between between civilians between cultures this apathy this coldness of love i want, want, to, I want to ask the question this morning what's behind this where's this come from now I, I could give you a few different theories i could talk about the bystander effect and all that that means but i'm not going to talk about that I could talk about a lot of theories on what causes this kind of apathy. That if you're in a graveyard too long, eventually you stop weeping. If you see something on the news over and over again, eventually you get callous and you shut down. I don't even want to talk about that. I want to focus on a detail in this passage where Jesus reveals the geographical location of where this attack takes place. And when he tells us it's on the road to Jericho, he's not just being colorful or poetic. He is being didactic. He is saying something he's telling us the location of this attack to reveal something about the mindset of this priest and the mentality of this levite who say we're just passing by we got something to do this is not our problem the road to Jericho in Bible days was known as the most dangerous path to travel in all of Israel. The Jews believed that if you were traveling this road and you were traveling it not in a caravan, but you were traveling alone, you were a fool. And if you dared to travel this road alone and you dared to be a fool, then you got what's coming to you. The Jews believed very much in Job's friend's ideology in a morally equitable universe that every person gets what's coming to them. You made your bed, then you lay in your bed. You made this mess, then you get yourself out of this mess. They bought into an ideology of the world that every man gets what's coming to him. The Jews had Yiddish or Hebrew sayings where it basically broke down this way. If you're dumb, then you better be tough because if you're dumb, you're going to reap consequences and when you're reaping those consequences, you deserve them. You're on your own. This was behind this apathy. As we see, we see injustice, we see something wrong and usually we try to right away go into figuring out how did this person bring this on well she wore a dress that was a little too short she was in the hotel room a little too late well he mouthed off a little bit too much right away go into victim blaming mode 
Because we have to explain how this could happen. It would rock our world. It would rock us to the core to suggest that the world might not be equitable. To suggest that bad things could actually happen to good people. Or to even suggest that bad people sometimes need your support. In fact, let me say this to you. If someone is in trouble in your life and you don't think they deserve your help, Ironically, you just made a case for mercy because mercy is undeserving. You just slipped up right there. By saying they don't deserve it, you just build a criteria for one who qualifies for mercy. A half-dead man does not need your scrutiny. A half-dead man needs your support. why Jesus ends this parable by saying here's the bottom line to the parable have mercy on your neighbor have mercy on a half dying man because the truth is he may not be eligible he may not fit the criteria for kindness he may have gotten himself in this mess he may have not done the right thing he may have not done the bright thing but either way he is needing your help So he says the road to Jericho, he's saying something here. He's not just being colorful. He's not just being poetic. He is specifically locating this crime, this attack at a location that struck a nerve with his listeners. He knew that the Jews believed you do not travel alone, but you travel in a caravan. And if you travel alone, then you got what's coming to you. Sociologists, right after this crime in 1964, a few years later, they constructed a hypothetical scenario where a man was in need of help and the participants weren't aware that it was a, a fictitious uh, circumstance and one group of participants offered help, the other group of participants didn't offer help and the group of participants that walked by like the priests and the Levites after extensive interviewing, they found out the one common denominator was they all bought into an ultra-conservative, morally equitable view of the universe that everybody gets what's coming to them the one common denominator they all thought like a priest and they all thought like a Levite in first century Jerusalem they all thought like Job's friends who said what you do wrong they all thought like the disciples who said who's to blame for this man's blindness they all thought like those that looked for someone to blame when a man is in the middle of the street and he's bleeding to death, he's hemorrhaging, he doesn't need a critical eye. He needs a lending hand. He doesn't need to be judged. In that moment, he needs to be loved. So in this story, we have the apathetic and we have the empathetic. We have the priest and the Levite and we have the good Samaritan. Now I want to look at what empathy looks like. I'm going to need a little empathy this morning. I'm be, can you just, I'll just be with you. I'm going to be honest. I'm running low on love. Anybody running low on love? Look at your neighbor and say, I'm running real low this morning on love. Anybody running low on love? It's okay if you're running low on love. God can change your heart. How many believe that? One of the most outstanding promises of the Bible, I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will awaken empathy within you. 
When God designed the body, he wired, hardwired, 11 empathic circuits in the brain. The word empathic comes from the word empathy. 11 circuits. Empathy is a lot more involved than you even realize. There's one circuit that helps you think like other people think. There's a circuit that helps you feel what other people feel. There's a circuit that helps you sense physically what other people are sensing physically. There are 11 circuits in your brain involved in empathy. God designed the human brain. He put these circuits in you not to be short-circuited, not to be compromised or hardened, but to be activated that you can love this world back to life. I wish I had time. I, I do seminars right now. I'm, I'm branching off into corporate America on awakening people to empathy, getting those circuits working in your brain. Listen, it's nothing short of a miracle, Amen. I can teach you all the psychology in the world, but we need the power of God in that book to awaken our hearts this morning. Because we are bent on selfishness. We are in love with our own opinions. How many have a love affair with their own opinions? Just be honest. Just love it the way you see it. You see it the way you see it, and you love it the way you see it. You ain't listening to listen and understand. You're listening, waiting for the opening. Right? You gotta, you gotta shove your oar in. You gotta let them know what you know. You pontificate, bloviate. Just let everyone know what you know. God gave you a circuit in your brain that helps you see how other people see things. Imagine that. Now here we are. This good Samaritan man, and he's empathetic. And I want to talk to you about three things about empathy this morning. Three things. Number one, empathy feels what people feel. The Bible says in verse thirty-three that he stopped. And he had pity on the man. The word pity is an expression of emotion in the Greek. It could have been the shedding of a tear. could have been a warm hand on the man's shoulders. could have been just a <sighs> inhale, inhale, exhale of someone's anguish. But there was some expression of emotion, some, some concern, some concern for this man. Now, you may say, well, what's, what's, what's the big deal if I, if I show people I'm concerned or the emotion? Why is that important? Why is feeling what other people feel important? You know why? Because people don't care what you know until they know you care. They, they don't care. They don't care how much you know. They don't care about the Bible verses. They don't care about what, what you learned in Sunday. They don't care about any of that until they first know you care. Now, if you're here and you're really being honest and I'm with you, we don't always feel what people feel. In fact, some of us haven't felt what other people feel in a long time. Some of us can watch the most devastating atrocities on the news and not feel anything. How does that happen? You know how that happens? Here's one possible explanation of how that heart gets so hard. Sin. Sin hardens the heart. Well, I'm going to explain this to you neurologically, neuroscientifically, how sin hardens the heart. I'll give you a whole neuroscientific theory on how this works. Let's take any sin, any practice of sin, drunkenness, philandering, whatever. When you're sinning, what you're doing, usually the, the reason for your sin, one of the reasons, is to deaden what you feel. Right, Ephesians 2 says we're dead in transgressions. Deaden it. I'm, I'm in too much pain. Deaden the pain. 
Drink alcohol, dead in the sorrow, dead in the agony, dead in the trauma, dead in every feeling I have, just dead in it. Ephesians 2.1, we're dead in transgressions, just dead, anesthetize every instinct to agonize, just anesthetize every emotion, every memory, every wound of the past, just dull it, just numb it in any way I can. Every time you sin, you're deadening your ability to feel. Here's the problem with that. The same neurotransmitter in your brain that allows you to agonize is the same neurotransmitter that enables you to empathize. That's why a crackhead who's done a lot of crack to shut out how they feel can also sell their baby's diapers or prostitute their kids and shut out how their kids feel. You can't feel what I feel because you stop feeling what you feel. And when you sin, it hardens the heart. It anesthetizes your agony. And by anesthetizing your agony, it deadens your empathy. The love of most will grow cold. That's why we need a miracle. We need God to say, look, Lord, I've been anesthetizing for too long. And as I anesthetize from my pain, I've anesthetized from everyone else's pain. And I'm cold. And there are times when I should weep. And I don't have it in me to weep. And there are times when I should be compassionate. But I don't have it in me to be compassionate. And there are times when I should be warm. And I should love. And I should be kind. But I don't have it in me to be kind. Lord, change my heart this morning. First thing empathy does is it feels what people feel. He has pity. The pity means it's an expression of some emotion. Second thing empathy does, pay attention to this. The man's in the street. He's hemorrhaging. Now, when a good Samaritan shows up, the first thing he does do is not give the man a lecture on making wise choices. The first thing he does, he doesn't get on his knees and start asking him some questions, probing him, seeing if he qualifies for this blessing. The first thing he does, empathy, the very first thing he does, after you feel what they feel, is you stop the bleeding. You deal with the crisis before you delve into the diagnosis. It is foolish to try to fix long-term problems without first addressing the urgent needs. Jesus never preached to people on an empty stomach. First thing, stop the bleeding. If you're a fireman, the house is on fire, you don't show up, the house is burning, and go, well, you really need to diagnose the boiler and figure out how this thing started. You put the fire out. You're talking to a suicidal person in your family that's suicidal, and you want to offer a mouthful of wisdom? Don't give them a mouthful of wisdom. Give them an injection of hope. Talk them off the ledge. Stop the bleeding, and then bring some correction. There's a need to preach repentance. There's a need to bring correction. There's a need for all that, but everything in its time. Injection of hope. What do they care? They don't even value their life. And you're telling them about laying down their life. They're down their life every day. Injection of hope. Stop the bleeding. First thing he does, he pulls out oil, wine, bandage, straps them up. He stops the bleeding. First thing we got to do is take care of this crisis before we get into any diagnosis. Third thing empathy does. <laughs> There's a word thrown around a lot lately, and nobody wants to hear about it, but it's in the Bible, and it's everywhere. It's the word privilege. It's all over the place in the Bible. It's everywhere. Now, we know that the Good Samaritan has a donkey. We also know, we can infer, it stands to reason, that the 
man half beaten to death in the middle of the street has no donkey. Nothing mentioned about a donkey. Owning a donkey was more than just owning a donkey. That was an insignia of status. It was a mark of where you are in life. You have a Bentley sitting next to somebody who drives a Civic. We can infer a few things about your lifestyle versus their lifestyle. You could say, well, the good Samaritan man, didn't he work hard to get this donkey? Listen, this is not a society that is impregnated with opportunity. These are permanent underclasses. Read the book of James. These are people who are poor, and more than likely, if they go ahead in life, they'll make some headway, but they're not going from poor to middle class. That's the American dream. This is a permanent underclass. You are stereotyped. You're pigeonholed. Wherever you're born, pretty much you're stuck in that category the man on the donkey, he is a certain privilege that the man on the donkey doesn't have. Now, if you don't believe in privilege, listen, just read some statistics, right? 11% of the world right now is starving to death. The other 89% are well-fed. That's a privilege to be well-fed, amen? 30-something percent of the country is obese. 11% of the world is starving to death. Some, that's privilege, right? Life is not an even playing field. It's not an even playing field. Some have privileges, others have problems. Some are mixed bags, have some privileges here, some problems there. The bottom line is life is not an even playing field. 22% of kids growing up in homes are without fathers. 78% have dads. That's a privilege. 12% of the population is struggling with a severe handicap, blindness, amputation, deafness, something, and the other 88% get around just fine. It's privilege. It's hard for us to swallow this privilege concept. It really is because it makes us feel like if we say we're privileged, we're saying we didn't work hard for what we got. No, you can be privileged and you can take that privilege and you can use it wisely. Guess what? Privilege is not something to despise. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something you should hate, but it is something you should use wisely. You are blessed to be a blessing. Freely receive, freely give. The average African-American, it'll take him twice as long to get an appeal on his conviction than a Caucasian. It's a privilege. It's just privilege. Even if you argue it's socioeconomic, it's privilege. Privilege. You have it. Some areas in your life you've got privilege, other areas you've got problems. But guess what? Wherever your privilege, you have a responsibility with that privilege. Your cup runneth over. It runneth over into your neighbor's lap. You are blessed in whatever area you're blessed not to hoard it, not to show it off, not to oppress others, not to overpower others, but to empower others. You were blessed to be a blessing. So here he is, and this is what empathy does. Donkeys were one passenger vehicles. The Bible says he picks up the man. He places him on the donkey. Empathy forfeits its privilege where someone else has a problem. We see this in Hebrews. Moses gave up the privileges. Let's just use another word. The privileges of Egypt. The Egyptians were a people of privilege. The Israelites were a people with problems. And Moses says, here I am. I'm on the side of privilege. But because God has given me his heart and because he's raised me up to be a deliverer and because I want to be effective and impactful for the kingdom, I will give up my privilege and I will stand with the people. I will suffer though with those
problems. Is not the doctrine of incarnation everything I'm saying? That God sat up high, but he stooped down low? Listen, if, you, if you're elevated to a status where you forget where you came from, if you're promoted to a point where your back can't bend to help someone at the bottom, that's not the favor of God. That's the sin of pride. That's not God lifting you up. That's you lifting you up. Because if he lifts you up, it's to lift someone else up. If he gives you power, it's to empower. It's not to overpower. Martin Luther King said, a man can't ride your back unless it's bent. You need to bend your back and stoop. If you lost somebody, say, don't let me lose my stoop. Don't let me lose my stoop. Don't let me forget where I came from. Don't let me not hear the cries of the oppressed. There are oppressed people, groups. I'm afraid that part of our apathy is evident. I hear it a lot now. Is I hear this all the time from people, all the time. And I get it. I know where they're coming from. Oh, they're just playing the victim. That's a quick cop-out because they actually are victims. And now everyone's playing. And people that com committed suicide that crying out for help 20 times before they did it. It's just playing the victim. That's how hard we get. When, you, when you're a parent, you know the difference between two cries. When your kids are crying, you know it. How many parents in the house? I'm a parent. I have a 26-year-old daughter. I got teenagers, 17-year-old, 18-year-old, 14-year-old, and I was an awesome parent until I had kids. I was... I was unbelievable. I was at best-selling books on it. I knew what you should do differently. And then they were born. Parenthood is the scariest hood that I have ever driven through. I've been to Detroit. I have family from the Bronx. I've been through the Bronx. I, I, I've seen a lot of different hoods. Trenton, parenthood is the scariest hood. It is the only hood where you will be beaten up, robbed, mugged, stripped, left dead by your own blood. When you're a parent, there's a cry. There's just, you start to discern a cry. There's a dramatic cry where they want attention. They're taking a tantrum, probably better ignoring that. But then there's a traumatic cry. It's the cry of the oppressed. It's a person in trouble. And you get better at hearing that cry. I knew, my, I knew the difference. I could tell. I knew when Hannah was in trouble. I knew it. And I knew when Hannah was just wanting attention. I pray this morning you'd hear the cries of the oppressed. I'm going to end right here. Here's where it all really begins. The, the guy's... In the inn, he takes him, puts him on his donkey, bandages him up, and he wakes up. He's been half dead, opens his eyes, and sees it's a Samaritan, an outcast, reaching out to an outcast. It'd be a whole lot easier for you to show empathy if you realize that at one point you were that half dead man. That this is just one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is. Hallelujah. Pastor Richard, if you come up here. God bless you guys. Amen. Let's all stand together. What a good word.
so much to that word. There's three sermons there at least. Amen. Can we just bow our hearts and just, just take a moment to pray? Would you let God just examine your heart and just, just take a moment to just talk to God and whatever the Lord might be speaking to you, uh, let there be, let there be a, a sensitivity and a softening. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, speak to our hearts. Lord, resensitize us. Renew us, oh God. God, let us somehow, some way, not just be a, a good hearer of a good message, but a good practitioner. God, help us to, even as Jesus ended this story and said, go and do likewise. God, I pray, Lord, that there would be a body of people that would truly empathize, God. Not just know how people feel, but feel how they feel. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seal the word of God in our hearts. Let it be nurtured. Let it be, let it just be cultivated and, and let there be fruitfulness, Father. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, let us realize that we have been blessed to be a blessing. Every single one of us have been blessed and privileged in some ways that others haven't been. Let us be good stewards of that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. God bless you. See you on Wednesday night via Zoom. The offering buckets are at the exits as you leave. The Lord be with you. Be encouraged in Jesus' name. If you receive the word of God, would you say a big amen? Amen. amen. God bless you.